Nature can open up our minds. It allows us to think creatively and let our imaginations run wild. In the fresh air, we can come up with ideas that change the course of our lives. That's exactly what happened to David Sacker. When David was 21 years old, he embarked on a pretty wild adventure. He decided to bike the Pan American Highway from the top of North America to the bottom of South America. That's 19,000 miles. Along the way, David was confronted with open landscapes and a lot of time to think. As he pedaled through the Andes Mountains, he was dreaming up his next wild idea, to open Vital, a unique 24-hour climbing gym that runs on trust and community. I'm Shelby Stanger, and this is Wild Ideas Worth Living. David Sacker grew up here in San Diego. Like me, he found surfing at a young age, and it was his gateway to a world of adventure. He started hiking, biking, and ultimately rock climbing. Outdoor adventure and an active lifestyle became pillars of his adult life. But unlike a lot of adventure athletes, David wasn't always a daredevil. David Sacker, welcome to Wild Ideas Worth Living. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So you have like one of the wildest ideas I've heard of. And a wild idea of yours led to, it sounds like, another wild idea that's kind of become your life with yeah. Vital Climbing Gym. Yeah. Which I discovered really during the pandemic. So I want to talk all about Vital, but first, I want to go back. Did you yeah. grow up outdoorsy? Did your parents tell you you could do whatever you wanted? Yeah, you know, it's funny. Um, when I was a little kid, I was extremely, I guess, sensitive, you could say, like, like if we go to the beach, I'd be like barely getting my toes in the water, you know, or the joke was always I could go in the pool and not get wet because like, say I was at a, you know, a place with a water slide or something. I go down the water slide and just be so nervous about getting wet. I go really slow, like barely hit the water in the bottom and like jump right out again. And that applied to everything. You know, I was, I was pretty like careful with how I approached life. And it started to change for me when I started surfing, so maybe 14, 15, kind of around that age. Uh, my brother and I would go before school. We had one of those old go-peds and he would drive, my older brother, and I would stand on a skateboard and hold a rope behind him and he'd pull me down to the beach on the go-ped. What's a go-ped? A go-ped's like... Like well, a now, moped? Is, yeah, now they're all electric scooters. This is a little gas-powered oh, scooter. Yeah. You stand up, it you know, it doesn't go more than yeah. like 15 miles an hour or whatever. And so even in San Diego, which people think of like Hawaii if they don't live here, in the wintertime it's cold. You know, you go out surfing in the morning, especially if you're a little 14-year-old kid in a bad wetsuit with holes in it. It's freezing cold. And I don't know why I did that because I wasn't having fun. <laughs> but I think there was some sense of identity. I'd be out there, watch the sunrise, think, wow, look, you know, look what I'm doing right now. All my friends are asleep and I'm here watching the sun come up. I caught some waves that were pretty gorgeous. And, you know, I'm watching the birds do their thing along the water. And, you know, your fingers get so cold, you can't even do up your zipper on your shorts, you know, because it's, it's so cold in the wintertime. Suffering through that, I think, was the beginning for me to realize, like, hey, I'm I'm kind of tough. I can do some things. And that aspect of my personality kind of started to manifest other places, too. Like, I was always the type I'd go on a hike with friends. And let's say we're hiking up a mountain. The trail kind of goes near the top. I'd see the rock stack that was the actual top of the mountain, like 50 feet away. And I had to go hack through the bushes to find the highest rock and stand on top of the very highest part of the, of the hill, just so I could say I went to the top, you know. And, so I was always the type who really wanted to finish things. And I was also intrigued, just so intrigued by the world. You know, I'd see a road kind of go off between two hills, disappear between the trees, and I just had to follow it and see where it went. Just explore. 
you know, and that was a lot of just simple exploring around where I grew up. But that kind of curiosity, I guess, drove me to do this crazy trip. When David was in college, he met a guy his age who biked the Pan American Highway. The story inspired David to try it himself. After graduating from Cal Poly San Luis Obispo in 2009, David hit the road. He started in the northernmost part of North America in Prudhoe, Alaska. Over the next seven months, he biked his way to the southernmost point of South America on an island called Tierra del Fuego, Argentina. How did you get the idea to do this? I mean, there's a lot of things you could have done when you graduated college. You could have just got a job. I mean, you went to school where most people become engineers. Yeah. I knew that after college, I would have a window to do something before my career started, before family started, before life really started in earnest, before I became an adult. And so I actually had a friend in college who, a guy named Emmanuel, who had done the same ride. He was from Argentina, and he was going to school where I was at uh, Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. And I knew he had done this ride. I was talking to him about it, and I was you know, thinking about it for days afterwards. Like, wow, that's really a wild thing to do. I would love to do something like that, but what could I do? You know, that, that sounds like a really great idea. What on earth could I do that would be, you know, kind of of that scale of adventure? And I was like, well... I don't need to reinvent the wheel here. That sounds pretty cool. I'm inspired to do that thing. So, did he show you pictures? Because this is the age, like 2009. There wasn't Instagram, like so yeah, to say. It's worth remembering, kind of what the technology was like at that time. Um, like you heard about it at a party, right? Yeah, I think I met Emmanuel at a party, and I had heard about him before, and so I took the opportunity to chat with him. And of course, we chatted a bunch about it before I started the trip. You know, I heard from his experience and got his advice and everything. But you're right; the technology at that time was different. I had an iPhone, an early iPhone. I don't know if it was like an iPhone 2 or something. Um, so I could take grainy pictures. Um, Wi-Fi was scarce, but you could find it. Video call, even sending an email, you know, from a truck stop with Wi-Fi somewhere in Northern Canada, I felt like I was living in the future, you know? And so I'd like send an email to my mom or something and think I was just doing the coolest thing ever to have any contact. But that would be from, you know, not having contact for weeks. Yeah. But at that time, not having too much tech support was a really great part of the adventure. And I wouldn't want to change a thing now. Um, I wish I had better pictures, but other than that, you know, I liked being somewhat disconnected. The one other thing I had I should mention was a satellite tracker called Spot. And so every night when I would stop, I'd push this little button on my spot and leave it out in the with a clear view of the night sky for like 15 minutes and hope that it would send a signal to a satellite, which would like then update my location on this map so my family friends could see where I was. Oh, that's smart for safety. It was for safety. Yeah. So you graduate from college, you have this wild idea and you're like, okay, I'm going to do it. But had you even ridden a bike before? Like, like seriously? a little bit. I had inherited a mountain bike from a friend and I used to go scrap around kind of inland San Diego in the, in the brush out there, you know, for a few hours after school or whatever. So I had ridden a little bit but I had never done a long trip. I didn't know biking as a sport per se. I'd never been serious or kind of mentored in how to bike well or how to bike camp or anything like that. So I emailed a bunch of companies trying to get financial support, you know, for the ride and get discounts on gear and stuff. And so this company, Comotion, that makes touring bikes, gave me a good deal on a touring bike when I told them what I was going to do. Kind of this super burly steel frame bike with mounts for saddlebags. And I got that shortly before the trip and rode it a little bit, not that much. Um, and you never rode it fully loaded. 
had never ridden it fully loaded. So that's actually a funny story. When I first got started on the ride, I had way more gear than I ended with, probably double the amount of weight. I think I was, you know, well over a hundred pounds and just stacked up on the back with food and water and tents and like a camp chair and all this nonsense that I didn't need. And the road for the first like 500 miles, so it's the whole north half of Alaska, um, is a gravel road. And so I start trying to ride this bike for the first time fully loaded after coming out of the little hotel room up there and sink right into the gravel and pretty much tip over. And there's like huge trucks going back. It's just a little oil town with nothing but just giant semi trucks on the road. Uh, So almost ate it and then had to kind of get my wits about me and set off on the trip with this bike that I'd really never ridden before. And then set up camp every night. Yeah. So I camped, I don't know the exact number, but the vast majority of the time I camped, I had a tent with me, sleeping bag. Stayed in a few hotels in Latin America. The hotels were a downgrade from camping because you pay, you know, four or five dollars for a hotel somewhere in Central America. But um, the hotels were, you know, real smelly. You'd have a threadbare sheet with stains all over it. I had a one room a room like that I, I could show you a picture of is pretty wild. Um, there was a giant tarantula right above the bed and I get in late at night. I'm like, oh, I'm too tired. Like, what do I do? There's this huge tarantula. I have my flip-flops and I'm just like, I don't know what else to do. So I just smacked the tarantula against the wall right above the bed and just like this. I mean, you know how big tarantulas yeah, are. Yeah, they're huge. so sm- bloody. Smacking any spider is kind of oh. not something I want to do anyways. But then a tarantula is like oh, throwing a water balloon at the wall above your bed. And so... That was kind of the hotel scene. But I did that a lot because in Central South America, it's cheap. You want to be able to rinse off because you're covered in diesel fumes and, you know, your skin is like kind of turning black from all the exhaust and stuff. And you're so sweaty because it's humid down there and you got bugs stuck all over you and everything. So you really want to rinse. That's like number one. And it's also fairly developed, the road down there. And so trying to find a place that has some food and then it's just kind of a safe feeling place to sleep where you're not kind of trespassing on somebody's land. A lot of times you end up in these cheap hotels. But other than that, South America, all of Canada, North America, Alaska, it's all camping all the way. And that was that was pretty wild. The Pan American Highway runs about 19,000 miles long. David said that this trip didn't necessarily require a lot of skill or expertise. Instead, he said it was endurance and grit that got him through. Putting in that many miles, an average of about 90 a day for seven months, can be really tough on your body. Before the trip, David had struggled with some pretty severe knee pain, but he was determined to stick to his plans. A quick question. When you were biking, you recently got knee surgery right before you went on your trip? Yeah, that was one of the reasons I didn't train either is because I had gone on this, again, this old mountain bike I had in college. Um... It's like a 30 mile bike ride. I could barely walk for like a week afterwards. Like I was limping because my knee just did not agree with it. So I recovered like a week or two, didn't really do anything. Went on another one, similar distance, like 20 miles or something, which is nothing. And same thing happened. So I was like, oh, I got a real knee problem. And so <laughs> I had seen some specialists. Nobody quite knew what was going on with me. You know, I'm a young, healthy guy, but for whatever reason, my knee doesn't like biking. So there was a good surgeon. He suggested trying something. He said he was not super confident that it would work, but it was worth a try. And I don't even remember exactly what he did. Cut a little piece of my meniscus off or something. So did you have a meniscus tear? No, no, no. I was, I was healthy per se, but it just biking really hurt my knee, my right knee. Um, and so he did this little procedure. like, oh, don't go biking a hundred miles or something like that. And I was like, well, in like three weeks, I'm living on this bike tour. I didn't tell that to him. 
And so I had had this little surgery, was still recovering, had ridden like after the surgery, maybe a total of 10 or 12 miles um, before I started on the bike tour. And so then I'm like, okay, let's see how this goes. And I start to ride. Um, and then like by the end of the first day, both my knees were just flared up and that persisted extremely painfully all the way uh, until Guatemala, but all of North America, all of Canada, all of Alaska, like I could barely get in and out of my tent if I had to stop for traffic lights. Um, Did you ice it? Like, I'm so confused. Well, you didn't have like ice on your bike. Well, no, I mean like Alaska, Canada, I would sometimes yeah. go in like the icy creek and put okay. my knees in there or whatever, but no, I was just kind of hobbling around and it was like, the pain was bad and I didn't want to have to deal with it. But then I was also kind of torturing myself the whole time with his thoughts. Like, am I ruining my knees? Like, yeah. am I ever going to recover from this? Am I just like so foolish to do this to my one precious body to like rip it apart like this? Um, again, fortunately it went away in Guatemala. Your mom sent you a care package with orthotics, right? Yeah. So that, that might've been the silver bullet is, um, I met up with my aunt and uncle who lived in uh, Central America. My mom had sent them a care package and there were these little shoe inserts that I put in the front of my bike shoes. You know, how much can an insert do? It like changes the angle of your toes by like, you know, a millimeter, two millimeters, something like that. Um, but I had taken like a week off with them and then I put these little inserts in and then I cruised and my knees are still great today. I do a lot of running and I like every day I walk around or, you know, lift up my kids or something. I'm stoked to have knees that work great. I mean, it's been a while since yeah, you've done that trip. Like it's over a years. decade. Yeah. yeah. What sticks out? Like what? I mean, cause that was such a wild idea. I doubt you'll ever do that again. Yeah. Hopefully <laughs> not. <laughs> it's like something... Sometimes I have nightmares. I do it again, you know, and then you're stuck somewhere in the desert and, you know, in Peru or something and trying to find your way out. It's kind of like after you graduate from high school, you still have nightmares about doing your homework, you know, that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, like it's one of those things to do once and you're like, I, I don't ever have to do it again, but yeah, I'm so glad yeah, I did it. Yeah. What what sticks out and like, what do you think you really learned from that trip? Yeah, I wrote at the time um, that I was forming a diamond in my soul. And I know that sounds kind of cheesy, but that's how I thought about it. You know, incredible heat and pressure is really intense. And you have something that you carry with you forever that's untarnishable. And it's kind of small and precious in that now it's just a memory and it's something that doesn't come up every day and most people don't even know about me, but it's extremely valuable to me. It's extremely precious. And I feel very grateful to have it as part of my life. As far as things you learn, I could list like concrete things that you learn, but I think a better way to think about it is it's less about what you learn and more about who you are or who you become. And I think that knowing that you're the kind of person who can do difficult things is really important for how you view yourself and also for how other people want to interact with you. If people hear that about me, they instantly are curious, they're intrigued, they want to know me better. Or in the case of starting my own business, you know, I said, hey, I'm going to start this business. And the comment I got was like, well, I know if you say you're going to do something, you're the kind of person who's going to do it. One of my favorite parts about David's story is that he made a decision to be the type of person who does hard things. He doesn't wait until he's the best or the fastest or an expert to go after what he wants. When we come back, David talks about how he came up with a wild idea to start Vital, which is one of the only 24-hour climbing gyms in the nation. He also talks about how he built a business on trusting people and the life lessons he's learned from climbing.
David Sacker was on the Pan American Highway for seven months. During the ride, he was on a pretty tight budget, camping or staying in the cheapest hotels, biking his transportation, and pinching pennies everywhere he went. Between this financial pressure and the natural stress of being a recent college graduate, David started thinking about how he was going to support himself when he got back to California. Was he going to pursue a career? Where was he going to live? The long days on the road provided space for him to come up with his next wild idea. So you're doing this ride, which feels deeply fulfilling, but in the back of your head, as all people who do grand adventures do, there's always this idea of, okay, when I finish this, that'll be great. But then, you know, if you don't have something already in place, you have this big what's next. Yeah, totally. I remember towards, I think it was like the last year of college for me, I was stressed most of the time, you know, every every day I was thinking about this for some period of the day, um, what I would do for a career, what I would do when I got back from my bike ride. And that was a heavy cognitive burden. And for most of the bike trip, I thought about that fairly obsessively, like, what do I do when I get back? And I always told myself that um, the period after my bike tour one year, two year, five years, I didn't know what it would be, but I told myself that the period after my bike tour would be the toughest period of my life because I would be trying to restart myself or to start myself. You know, I really wouldn't have entered the world as an adult, you know, until I could take care of myself. Um, towards the end of the ride, you know, the last maybe 10 days or something like that, southern end of South America, uh, kind of open plains of Argentina, gorgeous place. I was pushing really hard to get to the end and I was so frustrated because it was so windy and that would, despite my efforts, you know, I would get very little results for it. And I found that to be incredibly frustrating. And so while I was riding, I would just kind of try to have pleasant daydreams. I would try to zone out, try to like, what do you, you know, kind of go to your happy place, one of those kinds of things. And I think about, you know, what is my happy place? Where do I want to be right now? If I could be anywhere, what would it be like? And thinking about it in that way, as opposed to thinking about what do I do for money? What do I do for money? You know, thinking about where's my happy place. You know, I had this idea to have a little climbing gym back in Lucadia or in North County, San Diego, right where I grew up by the beach, um, small little place, climbing walls. I like to climb, have a little barbecue out front, 24 hours, people could hang out and climb. And I was like, oh, that sounds pretty great. Go home, open a little climbing gym, put a little barbecue out front, have your friends come by and hang out and climb. And that was the idea. And I remember thinking like, will that actually work? Could like something like that pay for itself? Could it make any money? Could it be a business? And I was like, had bike brain, you know, I was addled and could barely do the math. Like, and so I'm like trying to think like, well, how much is a membership and how much is rent? And I can't really make sense of it. I'm like, yeah, it'll probably work. So then when I got back, I had that in mind and I started to work on it pretty much right away. And I was really lucky because it came together fairly quickly and it worked. And I had uh, my closest friend join me as my business partner and we opened the first gym in Carlsbad. And it was really close to that vision that I had on the ride. There's a barbecue out front and friends would come up. We'd hang out, listen to music, climb. And we were off to the races. It, you know, we were, we were going at that point. With the help from his business partner, Nam Phan, David turned his idea into a real thriving business. Their goal was to make Vital a place to gather with friends and do something physical. In order to do that, they needed to create a community built on kindness and trust. 
Vidal relies on an honor system for things like shoe rentals and snacks, and it's open 24 hours a day. Why 24 hours? I got into climbing more seriously in college. Um, There was a climbing gym in town called The Pad, and they were 24-hour co-op. There was no staff ever. It was like in a storage unit, super like garage gym status. And if you sent them an email and paid them, they emailed you back a door code. And you could go in there and climb at any time. So like, oh, that's so again, all my ideas are just are just taken from other people who's had great ideas. And they were really supportive in helping me get the gym started, you know, some phone calls with them about how to do it and how to set it up and everything. So those guys, those guys are great. So I was inspired by that gym. Our gym was a little different in that it was like a normal gym during the day. And then at night we'd lock the door unless you had the door code. And you could still plug in your phone, flip on the lights at night, which many people did coming in at two or three or four in the morning if they couldn't sleep or just wanted to go hang with their friends or whatever. Um, it's really fun. It's it's great vibes. It's a, it's a cool thing to do. And we were nervous about it, of course. You know, you leave your gym open 24-7. Somebody could come in and do God knows what to the place. Um, but we have found that when you become a member of a gym like that, when you become a member of Vital, it's your space. And so it's like, are you going to go into your own place and tear it apart? I hope not. You know, like, who are you going to harm if you come in and, and rip apart the gym yourself? You know, it's here for you. And, and so why would you rip apart your own living room? You know, and, you know, of course, you have to have some rules in place. You can't just have chaos or things don't work at all. You know, if no customer ever paid. You couldn't have a gym in the first place. But one of the things that I think is that perfect enforcement can cause way more harm than it solves. So you might have a rule breaker and then you have this policy that you implement because of the one rule breaker that makes things worse for everybody. And it would be better to have one rule breaker, which you don't want to have somebody who's being rude or disrespectful or not following, you know, the social norms. That's a bummer. You don't want to have that, but you don't want to then let that person ruin it for everybody. And so at Vital, we have a lot of stuff that's just really open and trusting. And we try to create an atmosphere where it's not us versus the customer, but we're all just trying to be in this space together, having a good time. So when you first started the one gym in Carlsbad, to start a business, you need money, you need a business plan, you need to also feed yourself and house yourself. How did you make it work? Like, did you borrow money? Did you, where did you sleep? Yeah. Um, so when I came back from the bike tour, I had like zero cash. I don't remember how much it actually was, you know, but probably a couple hundred bucks or something. We started the business with a loan from my brother for like two grand or something, which we used to write and print business plans, which we then sent to everybody else we knew. And we're getting investments for like $3,000, $5,000, you know, kind of like slowly stacking it up. We had an estimate for what we thought the gym would cost and it ended up costing about three times that. And we didn't have any way to raise that amount of money, but we just kind of kept at it and kept asking and, you know, kept trying to hold to the vision that we wanted to create, you know, and without like, well, let's not build a climbing wall in our climbing gym to save money. Like, no, you got to like build the gym you need. And we were fortunate to like just barely raise the money as we needed it, as we went. And so got the gym open, felt like a miracle. It probably was. And then pretty much from the time we had the foam flooring show up at the gym, we were sleeping in the gym. So all the foam is stacked up on the floor and we're there working, you know, putting it all in ourselves until like one o'clock in the morning or whatever, then just sleeping on the foam flooring. And then we did that all the way until grand opening day. 
And then we're a 24 hour gym. We don't know what's going to happen. So we're there the first day, the first night after grand opening, people start to go home 10 or 11 or whatever. And we have a couple sofas in the gym. We're like, well, we should sleep here, you know, just to make sure that nobody comes in at night and steals the computer or something. So my business partner and I slept on the sofas because we wanted to see what would happen at the gym, keep it safe, you know, that kind of thing. And then about a week or two in, we had some extra foam flooring scraps and threw them behind the climbing wall and started sleeping back there. And so we saved on rent for a long time by uh, crashing behind the wall at the 24-hour gym. But what would happen if someone came in and turned on all the lights? Like, that happened you wake all up? the time. So how yeah, did you sleep? It was horrible, very badly. <laughs> yeah. Did anybody see you and like freak out? Uh you know, it's kind of one of those open secrets at a certain point. We're kind of the OG members. Like we'd come out in the morning super bleary eyed, like after a terrible night's sleep of somebody playing their like death metal at two in the morning, or whatever, at max volume, like with the lights on. We're like, okay, that was a bad night. And we had a lot of bad nights. Um, and you didn't tell them like, hey, dude, I'm sleeping in here. We would sometimes trip the breaker behind the wall. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if it was especially painful and we'd like make them think that they like, you know, blew out the system or something, but we just like trip that breaker and turn off the music. It's too painful sometimes. So funny. Okay. So I really am curious about, you know, there's two things that are really important to you, inclusivity mm-hmm. and community. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about like what that means to you. Cause those words are thrown around a lot today, but this is a word that you had since 2009. You're like, I want to be inclusive and I want to foster community with yeah. this climbing gym. Yeah. You know, we are in the climbing industry. We're not like making paper or logging or I don't know, just like making bolts or something. We're making a climbing gym. It should be fun. Like if we can't make climbing fun or if, if we succeed at making a climbing gym an unhappy place to be, like shame on us, you know, we have every reason to have Vital be a fun place to work, to be a fun place to hang out and climb and be with your friends And so a lot of what we think about is how do you do that? You know, what makes a place have a bad vibe? What makes a place have a great vibe? And we just try to be really careful about doing things that make people love being there. And that's everything from how we design and build the spaces to the policies we have or the policies we don't have, you know, like try not to have too many rules. Um, You know, for example, just a million things, but we don't have a script for our desk staff. You know, you don't want to have any candid, like framed lines where you say this or that. It's like, just have a genuine interaction with people and talk to them and be nice and get to know them and treat them well. And they'll probably do the same for you. And that should be great. You know, across the board, being a 24 hour climbing gym, it's definitely our responsibility to make it a positive contribution to the world. People need good things to do in life. And there's a lot of them out there, but sometimes, you know, if you live in a certain place for a long time, you can think, what do I do today? I can do this again. I can do that again. And there's not that many options for people to socialize that don't involve eating or drinking. Eating or drinking is great. You know, I'm a person I like to eat and drink, but it's really good to have a place you can go to be together that's active, that's intrinsically social. Climbing supports a really encouraging environment because everybody pushes themselves hard when they climb and everybody fails when they climb. And so being in an environment where everybody's trying and striving and failing creates this super supportive culture. Climbing is very much a problem solving game. Like you can try a problem five times and be strong enough to do it, but you didn't succeed at climbing the climb simply because you didn't have the right puzzle pieces in place. You moved the wrong way. You had your wrist at the wrong angle. You had your weighting wrong. You did the wrong sequence, whatever it is. So it's this extremely intellectual, like 
problem to solve and you get better at solving it with practice. But one of the things that I found interesting about climbing when I was first learning is you can look at a wall or be on a wall. So you're partway up a wall and the next, you know, five feet seem unsolvable. You don't know where the handholds are. It looks very difficult. You're in a precarious position already and you move your feet a little bit and you get maybe eight or 12 inches higher and suddenly you see the next movement and it's there in front of you. And so you move again and then you get another six or 12 inches higher and you see the next move. And so that method of problem solving really applies to a lot of areas of life to include starting a business or going on a grand adventure. It's like, hey, you can't see the end from here at all. You can't see every step from here at all. But if you can get yourself six or 12 inches higher, at that point, you'll see the next move and then the next one and the next one. David Sacker, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your insights about adventure and business. I loved hearing your story and your perspective on building a business by trusting people. And thank you for Vital Climbing Gym because it has been my savior during the pandemic and so much more. If you want to learn more about Vital, you can check out their website, vitalclimbinggym.com. That's V-I-T-A-L Climbing Gym. Wild Ideas Worth Living is part of the REI Podcast Network. It's hosted by me, Shelby Stanger, written and edited by Annie Fassler and Sylvia Thomas of Puddle Creative, and our senior producer is Chelsea Davis. Our executive producers are Paolo Motola and Joe Crosby. As always, we love it when you follow this show, rate it, and review it wherever you listen. And remember, some of the best adventures happen when you follow your wildest ideas.